As storytellers and dreamers, there is always magic to discover. Once, Once upon, upon a time, time, a Las Vegas showgirl and a comedian magician figured out that even with different perspectives, our adventures and experiences together are really just one, one big cake. Snickers is like a, an AA meeting. We love you, Athena. I'm kidding. I'm teasing. Keep going. Okay. Uh, we decided to do this podcast to share our adventures, and they are not necessarily thrill-seeking adventures or uh, finding uh, whatever thrills around the world that we can. They are our everyday adventures as entertainers. So. We have adventures all the time, and we see things that may be just bland or benign to somebody else as an opportunity for another adventure. Yeah. I like doing this podcast. Sure. <laughs> sure. So, a request from a viewer or listener was about pivotal moments in our lives as entertainers, and I thought we could do... A bunch of episodes like this so sure we'll just sprinkle them in as we go there are in every entertainer's life uh, specific things that have happened to us that have kind of directed us um, yeah. or reinforced what we intended to do in the first place or something like that right, right. and yeah. uh, I'm sure that we both have plenty of them to make this a, a bit of a series you'll see them once in a while yeah so, do you want me to start? Yes. What is, okay. a, what is a pivotal moment in your career as a dancer? Okay. As I was brainstorming this topic, I came up with like six different pivotal moments that okay. really changed like sure. my path. So, it was literally that fork in the road. It was like, if you go this way, this is going to happen. Yeah. Kind of the red pill, red pill, blue pill situation, <laughs> I think. I mean, when you look back at it, you're like, oh, I wonder what would have happened if I didn't choose that or you know, I, I at least I do I don't know if people are so introspective as I am but uh, so yeah I'm going to talk about one that happened before I became a professional and that was the first year I went and did a ballet summer camp and that's a normal thing in a ballerina's history is is uh, and and becoming is uh, the ballet summer camps, but it was my first year. I was 14 years old, and every spring or uh, early spring, uh, January to March, you audition for these. The privilege to go to these. Oh, camps. I didn't know that. Yeah, okay. you can't just go. You can't be like show up at Pacific Northwest Ballet summer program and go learn. You have to audition. Interesting. And you have to pay to audition. <laughs> so, Do you have to pay to go to the camp too, or just? Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. So uh, it's Seriously. an interesting money maker. That's why there's always academies attached to ballet companies because mm -hmm. it, number one, it feeds new artists in, and it also it makes money. Uh, sometimes they do support the the companies. Other times, um, it, it they do become separate entities. But most ballet companies have their own their their own academies. But uh, this was new to me because as I started, I was a competition dancer. My parents owned a dance studio. And we did summer programs too, but it was, uh, you know, jazz, tap. We we brought in uh, choreographers and 
dancers in the industries. Uh, so we, we had a number of people come in that we met on the uh, convention track. So if they taught at convention, my parents would talk to them and book them to come and, and do the summer programs. So when I turned uh, 14, that was a, a big year for me, um, changing, kind of changing directions, because that's the year I was introduced to ballet as an actual career that I actually saw professionals, real professionals in class with me or uh, that I could watch their company class, right? And so this first year I had been training with my teacher and I call her my teacher because she basically finished me as a, as a professional. And uh, she took me under her wing and uh, she said, this is what you do. So uh, we find out who comes to uh, Colorado Ballet, and they host the uh, Colorado Ballet hosted the all the the auditions, and you go and show, give them your best. You show, you do a full class, and and they decide if if you're number one, if you fit the profile, if you're a good dancer, <laughs> and would do well in their program. And how many no's I got that year? I don't even know how many I auditioned for, but my teacher would try to help us decide. So I know I did um, Boston, San Francisco, Pittsburgh, uh, Pacific Northwest, Vail, which is the Bolshoi. And no, I don't think I did Vail that year. I think Vail was the next year. I wasn't quite ready, in other words. My ballet training wasn't that strong yet. Okay. Because I'd only been with my teacher for six months or so. Mm -hmm. um, so I was literally like Bambi. So, um, sadly, I didn't get into any of the programs, and I, I think the audition fee was like 15 to $20, so we, I only did a handful, but I didn't get into any of the big companies. All of my friends did. Yeah. So, one of them went to San Francisco, one of them went to Pacific Northwest, and the other one went to Boston Ballet. And they had been studying with her a little bit longer than me, but we were all the same age. Okay. So... Uh, I was very heartbroken that I couldn't get into a summer program. Like, I wasn't good enough to get into any summer program. Sure. And uh, so my teacher said, you know what? I go and I teach at this summer program every summer. Just come with me. And it's, it's much cheaper. And you'll get personalized coaching from old Russian stars. And I was like, okay. So I went. Four weeks in Minnesota, St. Paul, to the Andahazi Ballet Academy, Ballet School. And uh, I studied with Gabriela Komlova, Alessi Zova. Um, there were, there was a, a character teacher too, but um, we had live accompaniment. We had, you know, the piano, people playing the piano. And uh, I was in the upper class, even though I wasn't quite upper yet. <laughs> I was old enough to be in the upper class. I just wasn't quite there. Um, and I really, that was really a turning point for me because I actually met some of the Russian um, prima ballerinas and just seeing them and just demonstrating with their their hand gestures and, and how they presented themselves mm -hmm. was, it was definitely pivotal for me. So um, I came back. And I actually had improved more 
than my friends that went to the big schools. And so this is my juicy bit <laughs> for the episode. The next summer, they all went to the same school. Oh, they they okay. all went with me back to Anahasi. Right. Yeah. And it just became a thing. We all went to whatever programs we got to before or after, and then we all went to Anahasi together. So, um, yeah, that was my juicy bit. That's that fun. I had, uh, I had come back better than everybody else. I mean, the, the, the amount of improvement was visibly right. more noticeable than, than they had experienced. Some of them had gained weight. Some of them um, uh, developed eating disorders. It was, uh, you know, they all went kind of downhill. So um, that's my juicy bit. <laughs> um, the next summer, I actually got into the, the Bolshoi and Vail full scholarship. And I had won the uh, ballet competition first place. So my entire summer was paid for. Bye. Lovely. Scholarship. So yeah, that's, that's my juicy bit. <laughs> Alright. So my love, pivotal moment. A pivotal moment. It doesn't moment. have to be that age. There, I was 14, so. There are so many, uh, and yeah. I definitely was not 14 at the time that this particular one uh, came about. It was in... You were 22. You were 22 when that was happening to me. She loves to point out the difference in our age. Um, <laughs> so... I, there are so many pivotal, pivotal moments, and I started performing in 1981, so I've been doing it a long time, and uh, it depends on whatever triggers my memory that I would come up with an idea here. And one of the things I thought I would explain is that I, I'm also a visual artist, and there was a time in my life that I had to decide what I was going to focus on. Um, oh. It was it was important that I make a decision because uh, being a performer and a visual artist and all of the marketing and training and everything else that's involved in either one of those disciplines uh, was too much for one person. And uh, I wasn't going to get very far if I didn't focus on one or the other. Mm. And I was enjoying some great success in the art world and meeting celebrity artists and um, almost got to the point that I was going to be an exhibiting artist I uh, certainly had the body of work. I'd published a few things. Uh, uh, I was doing commissioned work, and I got to become a partner in an art gallery with uh, two other partners and an investor. Uh, and that was a great experience. I can tell you that running an art gallery is very, very similar to producing a show because each show is the same kind of thing, and you have to have marketing. You have to get people in the door. It's, uh, mm -hmm. it's pretty brutal. Um, and I also got soured in understanding what kind of artwork sells, uh, or at least at the time. Um, and I started being guilty of booking exhibits of artists who produced work I knew would sell in order to be able to survive as a gallery. We had rent, we had overhead, we had to, we had to survive. So mm -hmm. I was falling victim to understanding that uh, several people who were interested in whatever we carried at the gallery had specific tastes, and most of them were neutral, meaning that uh, they were after, if it was a two-dimensional work, they wanted decorator pieces, and at the time, the most popular decorator pieces you're were... Gonna, wait, you're going to give secrets out? Oh, it's outdated, so we're, we're going back to 1998 with this. Okay, uh, okay. Um, but the, the most <laughs> popular decorator pieces were photographs of windows and doors. Maybe old Italian doors or something like that, but windows mm. and doors were a hot seller, 
and photography was good because um, it's it, it can be printed on demand, so we didn't have to carry a huge inventory. Um, it was as a business move, kind of the safe way to go, and that kind of bummed me out, you know. Um, and it was affecting my own artwork. I wasn't producing the same. Uh, passion-infused artwork because I knew that it wasn't neutral decorator work and may not sell. Um, ah, this and, is interesting. And it, it kind of soured me on the yeah. whole thing to a degree. I stopped creating for a little while and began to focus back on being performing, and I found myself, um, per my usual at the time, uh, somebody asked somebody else what I do I don't I, I can't remember how it went but it was within 20 minutes that I had an entire bar of people in my audience and I was just throwing down with stuff that I was just pulling from behind the bar and uh, I think I did a 30 40 minute show and I thought well, this is so much more fun than being worried about hanging work that isn't going to sell and that was when I made the decision to go to the spotlight yeah. Wow. Yep. 1998? 1998. All right. Yeah. Interesting. So 24 years ago. <laughs> I was 18. I still produce artwork. I have renewed interest in it, and I think because it is not my career, I can create whatever I want, and I'm not influenced by works I know will sell. Hmm. Here's a juicy bit. Okay. I, yes. I, okay. One quick juicy bit, because I, I know that you wanted me to come up with a juicy bit, and it's only just occurred to me. I had an artist booked for a uh, four-week exhibition, so the artwork was to hang in the gallery for four weeks. If someone purchased one of the pieces, we would red sticker it, but it was going to stay in the show for the entirety of the four weeks. Mm -hmm. That artist gave me a call two days before hanging day. So hanging day happens on a Thursday, and then an opening happens on Friday. Two days pulled from the show. Uh. And my one of my partners, uh, Lisa and myself, created a body and framed a full gallery of work under pseudonyms. What? And, um, and so we were able to run with the same schedule and and uh, we hung the work it was a long long late night uh, and I think I created 10 pieces and so did Lisa and I signed them Darwin Halo and they sold out and that was one of the experiences that I was like I'm working too hard at this mm -hmm. well opening night they sold out the whole gallery was just sold well so one of the things I love about being an artist and why I'm enjoying thrifting so much is being limited with your resources. Mm -hmm. And I feel like as artists, that's like one of our superpowers is to basically pull stuff out of our asses to create. I, I wholly agree. Yeah. When your so maybe, resources are limited, your creativity kicks in. Um, yeah. And maybe that's an explanation as to why huh. pov poverty breeds artistic so people, much. right? Yeah. yeah. Well, also, just the experience of being in poverty and um, some of the experiences that people in poverty 
experience are, you know, of fodder for create creative expression. Yes. Self-expression. Sure. Yeah. I was going to say, when you were talking about being an art gallery owner and knowing, recognizing what's going to sell, it sounds like the same kind of situation that venue owners are in. It's, uh, it's why the entertainment industry is kind of a rocky territory anymore because... It's a bummer. Um, you know, the first thing venues look for is how much of a social media following do you have? Are you going to bring people into our venue and sell our booze to them? Um, and that's a reasonable consideration, but unfortunately, yeah. uh, it's it's a, just a brutal landscape. Yeah. To be a musician or a, a, any any performing artist. I think that's why it's, uh, entertainment or uh, content content creators on any social media is taking off so much, is because there's no like overhead you don't have to go do a show it's sure. like the show happens after like the the guy in his robe that's on the fitbit commercial now mark ribillet thank you yeah um you know he just was making videos and for fun and now he was uh, just kind of thrown down and enjoying himself yeah. and his he's tiny probably a millionaire in his yeah. little robe and now he's doing fitbit commercials and doing very well. probably getting paid really well to do that so yeah. it's just a different formula a different path as it's a, all very new. Artist. I've been writing about Andy Warhol and how did yeah. he create his his stardom. Because um, he created it. It's, it couldn't be done again, not the way he did it. No. But I'm seeing people uh, do it now. However, speaking of Warhol, he did say everyone in the future is going to be famous for 15 minutes, and we're seeing that. Yeah. Right? Yeah, because when I was trying to do some research on that, TikTok show, TikTok star show that was canceled. Everything that came up was canceled TikTok stars. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's right. We are in this it was, weird uh, It was prophetic too. for him to, to yeah. say that. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, so there's something to that too, because I was told by uh, someone who was close, not very, very close to Frank Rosenthal, but close to him in a weird way, uh, in one of my... Uh, episodes that he knew there was going to be a movie made about him he also knew robert de niro was going to play him hmm. and when he told this woman this it was the early 80s so hmm. robert de niro was playing like taxi driver right. he wasn't or no it was al pacino wait i always get those I, two confused I, okay robert de niro was playing now, he was in um, Godfather. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, my dad would probably kill me. You're you don't know the you're difference? Th you're throwing me. You're, I'm sorry, yeah. but okay. they, oh, I always confuse them. Now I don't, but when they were younger, they were very similar, like, face to me, anyway, as a, a young there, person. There's, they fit there's, in a type. They do fit yeah. in a type. But, um, you know, she was, she's like, you're crazy. But then, Casino came out. So I'm wondering if, like, um, people like Andy were extremely brilliant, like, genius creators or artists or whatever you want to call them. Uh, because I think Frank Rosenthal had some psychic ability, whether you believe it or not, uh, ability to know certain things mm -hmm. um, because they're uh, tapped into that creative flow, like, okay. in being an artist. 
I, that could be a whole other yep, episode, but I, yeah, just that, I just had to say that, okay. whether it makes it to the episode or not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, sorry. He's a skeptic. He doesn't believe in this stuff. He Don't whisper. He thinks I'm crazy. <laughs> Don't think you're crazy. Um, yeah, that's uh, I that's this triggering another episode. I think with uh, the choices producers have to make and versus like in our gallery owners, I I didn't even think of that parallel until just now. So, yeah, there's definitely a parallel. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. See, this is why we do this. So we learn more about each other too. It's working. <laughs> What do you think? Is it good? I think that's a fine place to put it to, to bed for now. We're going to hit the subject again and talk about other pivotal moments that we've experienced. And we thank you for joining us. You yeah. can reach us anytime at hello at onebigcaper.com or just right beneath this. And, and uh, we'd love to read that stuff. Thank you. Thank you. We can't keep doing this without you. Give us just a little bit of your time by subscribing, sharing, rating, or talking about One Big Caper with someone else. We truly appreciate your support. We want to hear your stories. Visit OneBigCaper.com to get to know us even more. This episode of One Big Caper was published in 2022. All rights to broadcast in whole or in part are the property of Gazellus Productions, LLC.